we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for 12 months for just $62.99 and save 30% on the newsstand price. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $62.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Angela Heathcote and this is Talking Australia. This episode, we're talking about octopuses. Thanks to the Oscar-winning documentary My Octopus Teacher, we all have a deeper appreciation for the intelligence of cephalopods. But do they really have personalities? Can they dream? And how smart are they? Peter Godfrey-Smith, a philosopher of science, is here to help answer some of those questions. Following an encounter with a particularly curious cuttlefish, Peter set out about uncovering the secrets of octopus intelligence. This is what he learned. Peter, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, First off, why would a philosopher like yourself choose to study octopuses? That came about uh, in a way by chance. I was working in the US as a philosopher and would come back to Australia where I I grew up in the northern summers, uh, the winter here, and just began spending more time in the water, especially around Manly, and began to just come across firstly giant cuttlefish, uh, which really just captured my heart in a sense, and then also octopuses and the whole, the role of the cephalopod group within animal evolution and their their behaviour, their various characteristics just became, became a strong interest. And it was then possible to marry that that interest in the animals with some of the work I do in philosophy because the evolution of the mind is a um, both a scientific and a philosophical question and cephalopods with their complex nervous systems are a great case for thinking about the evolution of the mind. Mm. I read in a Guardian article that you had quite a transformative experience when you were in Cabbage Tree Bay and you saw that cuttlefish. Um, I mean, what was going through your mind and what were you thinking about? Well, I... I was amazed by the colour changes. Uh, these are animals that can change their colour, you know, in a fraction of a second to just about anything. I'd never seen anything like that before. And also the fact that this particular giant cuttlefish seemed quite interested in me as well as um, my being interested in him. You know, it's a big animal. This is about was about two feet long or so. They get to three feet long and... Uh, would come forward and peer at me. Uh, just the, the sense of contact was, was was very strong and quite an unexpected thing, especially when you think about the enormous evolutionary distance between us and them. I mean, they're mollusks. They're miles from us in evolutionary terms. And just on that note, I obviously you've just said we're miles apart, but is there anything that humans and octopuses have in common? Well, in some ways, we followed a similar evolutionary path on our own distinct tracks. Uh, We have large nervous systems, uh, especially compared to our neighbouring animals. Um, Octopuses have by far the largest nervous systems of mollusks and of other invertebrates by any measure, really. 
Um, they also have a kind of um, inquisitive, curious, cu exploratory kind of intelligence, especially octopuses. Uh, they're interested in manipulating things. They quite like novel objects in many cases. Uh, so that that affinity with novelty and that exploratory tendency is a similarity between us and them in a kind of cognitive style in a way. Uh, and, you know, that's the first of, of quite a long list. They're, they're very visual animals like us. They have eyes built on a similar design to our eyes, even though they evolved separately. Uh, they can learn in somewhat similar ways to us in some ways. There's evidence that they can feel pain. Uh, I think there's more circumstantial evidence for um, stress-like experiences and things like that. There's a kind of emotional profile there that I think is not uh, not dissimilar from ours in some ways. It's taken us humans a while to appreciate the complexity of animal brains. Animal cognition is a relatively new field and has made some significant gains in our understanding of wildlife. Still, scientists are reserved when using the term intelligence. And obviously you've been studying octopuses for a while now and observing them in the wild and whatnot. What's one of the most intelligent things you've ever seen them do? I've never seen an octopus do some particular thing that made me think, my God, that's smart. I mean, I, I, I can't actually say I've, I've seen something like that. Um, a case of puzzle solving uh, in, in real time or, or something of that kind. Uh, I've seen a lot of inquisitive, exploratory types of behaviours. Um, the, the way they have an affinity for novel objects. I once took down some plastic stakes with weights on them uh, to put into the seafloor to mark out an area uh, near an octopus site. And the next time I went round, the octopuses, one of the octopuses had taken out one of the stakes and brought it home uh, and used it to decorate its den. Uh, thereby defeating the purpose of the, the marker, of course. And I don't think of that as showing great intelligence. It shows a kind of richness in their engagement with objects, though. The fact that this, ob this thing, which was quite awkward and had to be dragged out of the seafloor, uh, was interesting enough to manipulate in this way. I think pretty quickly the, the octopus probably worked out it couldn't be eaten, uh, but it was still worth was still worth having around. Kind of what I'm speaking to in saying that is like, for example, there's a lot of um, conversation about cockatoos even at the moment and them being intelligent animals, but I feel like a lot of that is just because they do stuff that's very common to humans and maybe the animals that don't do that, we kind of go, oh, they're just dumb, if that makes sense. Yeah. In in the case of birds, I, mean, I, I don't know of the recent cockatoo work, uh, but there's recent work on on crows that I think really does show uh, not just an internal complexity, but an internal complexity that uh, fits any reasonable uh, description of intelligence. So, for example, with crows, uh, in some cases, they can look at a puzzle, a, a situation where they have to solve a problem behaviourally, and they stop and think, or at least they stop and watch, and without doing very much, they uh, take in what's going on and then immediately will produce a novel behaviour that solves the puzzle. They can come up with a novel behaviour without a lot of trial and error and messing around in some cases. They just work it out. Now, an octopus would never do something like that 
in response to a novel problem. Their, their approach is to crawl all over it, manipulate it, try every possible physical, every possible physical manipulation of the thing. The, the term intelligent, I think, in some ways, it fits a birdie way of being quite neatly, more so than it fits a cephalopody way of being, because birds do have this, at least in some cases, tendency to sort of sit back, process a situation, and then act in novel ways, whereas an octopus is always using the complexity of its body to, uh, you know, turn the thing over literally as well as figuratively and explore every possible, uh, every physical possibility the object presents. Um, octopuses have done some puzzle solving in laboratory contexts uh, that shows something a little bit analogous. Uh, Michael Kuber has a nice experiment where an octopus learnt to perform a sequence of actions to open a puzzle box. Uh, there are such things, but I don't think of it as the natural way to describe the way of being that's characteristic of octopuses. It's, I think they're very complex animals and I think they're experientially rich animals but their complexity is seen especially in the in the physical, bodily, manipulative complexity that they exhibit, uh, more than a kind of sit back and reflect kind of complexity, which you do see sometimes in birds. Mm. And what do you think octopuses can tell us about the origins of consciousness? Well, octopuses together with other important cases, I think, do tell us a lot. Uh, it's very striking that octopuses are so far from us on the evolutionary trees. It was, you know, roughly 600 million years ago was when the common ancestor of us and an octopus lived. And that common ancestor was probably a little flattened worm, maybe a centimetre long or less or something like that. Did have a nervous system, almost certainly, but a very simple one. And you have from there a path leading to animals like us with the um, development of more complex nervous systems and behaviours and at some stage eventually experience appearing as a feature of our lives. And you have a path that's similar in some ways uh, leading towards octopuses and other cephalopods. And at the end of that path, you also have pretty good marks, I think, of the presence of experience. Very hard to be sure. With questions like this, it's always possible to be sceptical and uh, doubt that the what you can see is real evidence for an inner life or uh, subjective experience, consciousness. But in the cases of octopuses, I think the evidence is good. Uh, there's pretty good evidence for pain. There's that attentive, inquisitive way that they interact with things. Uh, there's a body of evidence that I think um, makes that case. And so one thing we learn from that is that it's possible for uh, a very different kind of animal with a different lifestyle, a differently configured nervous system to end up at a place where it appears to have experience. So you don't have to have a brain like ours. You don't have to have the particular vertebrate or mammalian brain architecture. You don't have to have a life like ours. You don't have to be particularly social in the way that we are. Octopuses, uh, for the most part, are not very social. And 
from there, I think the lessons become a bit more indirect. I mean, we just we, we're getting this emerging picture of the way in which across the animal kingdom, uh, neural complexity, complexity of nervous system and complexity of behavior evolved in different ways in different cases. Uh, you see important additional cases in crustaceans, uh, in, in crabs and shrimp and animals like that. Uh, birds we've already talked about uh, as a vertebrate case, but one some distance from our mammalian case. And we're, we're getting, and I think we'll continue to get, uh, the outlines of a view of how it is that consciousness, the, the kind of lifestyle and brain and way of being that includes consciousness can gradually evolve, take different forms in different parts of the animal kingdom. In saying that, how do you think humans should be interacting with octopuses? Well, I think that once we recognise that there's good evidence that they do have experience, that they're sentient in a broad sense of the term, that at least has to be taken into account. I mean, it has to be something that's 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 factored in. Now, one of the things we're going to have to grapple with, I think, over the next few decades is firstly the very wide range of animals for which there's some evidence for um, consciousness in a very broad sense of that term or sentience, uh, including various invertebrates as well as vertebrates. I think we've gotten used to the idea now that there's good evidence for uh, genuine experience in fish. Victoria Braithwaite, the late Victoria Braithwaite's work was very important in uh, making that case. And it's not that I think that there's an immediate moral response that is um, just inevitable or follows automatically, that we have to give them all rights or something like that. Uh, in some ways, to, to do something like that would be to um, not take seriously the complexity of a situation where there are going to be partial cases, intermediate cases, very borderline cases uh, of consciousness or experience in different parts of the animal kingdom. I don't think there's an immediate moral upshot that we can just uh, infer, but I do think we'll have to start to take into account the interests and the inner lives of a much wider range of animals than we historically have. I feel like you're the perfect person to ask. What was your thoughts on my octopus teacher and the impression that it gave the wider public of octopuses? Would you say it was positive and that it revealed the intelligence of octopuses to people or would you be in the critics' camp of it sort of anthropomorphised and maybe got a little bit confusing? You know, like where do you sit on that spectrum? I, I thought it was a beautiful film, just absolutely beautiful to watch. And some of the footage that they got, uh, which was you know, genuinely completely new, the footage of the octopus covering it in sh itself in shells uh, in order to disguise itself from a shark. I mean, that's that's really important footage. It had never been seen before. Uh, it's, a, it's a very notable behaviour, very interesting behaviour. So they, they got stuff like that, that, that that's really quite important. On the question of whether there can be something describable as friendship between uh, an octopus and a human. I'm a bit more cautious there. 
There is evidence in laboratory work that octopuses can remember and re-identify individual humans. There's an experiment that was done by uh, Ronald Anderson and Jennifer Mather some years ago that, that did good, give good evidence for that. To go from there to a view that there's a genuine friendship possible in circumstances like this, it, it's not that I'm against the idea, I'm just... I'm more cautious about that than I am about the the other sorts of things we've talked about here. Do you think that octopuses can have personalities? Oh yeah, I, I think I think there's pretty good evidence for personality in in quite a few animals. I mean, in some ways, it's the other view, the opposite view, that would be very weird and surprising. I mean, the idea that all of the animals of a particular species or of a particular species age and sex perhaps are just you know carbon copies of each other with respect to their the way they approach the world i mean i think that would be weird even though it was something that was assumed by quite a few people for a long time uh i think now it's becoming quite clear that in many animals you have uh a distinction between a shy shy and bold personality. In lots of animal groups, there are shy individuals and bolder individuals, um, more inquisitive, less inquisitive individuals. In the case of cephalopods, you do get real differences in, in a kind of uh, willingness to approach and take an interest in novelty, including humans. I mean, personality, the, the term can be used in a very loaded way, but I think of all these things as as personality type traits. And uh, it's unsurprising to me that in lots of animals, there's evidence for something like that. Back in 2017, scientists published a paper that described a sort of underwater city built by octopuses, um, which of course shocked people. What do you think we can learn about octopuses from those structures? Okay, this, the city octopolis, to call it a city really is a stretch. Um, <laughs> Uh, this is the site that I've studied with some people for quite a few years now. And what you have is something very unusual. But if you call if one calls it a city, it makes it sound as if there was a kind of collaborative construction of places to live or something like that. It's not like that. Each octopus is building its own den. The dens are just holes. Now they're quite sophisticated holes in some ways. The situation is one where you have a very silty seafloor in this area, very hard to build a stable den uh, out of that silty sand. And in one particular spot, a whole lot of scallop shells have been brought in, probably by the octopuses, or at least many of them have been brought in in a kind of positive feedback process where um, a few octopuses live there, they bring in scallops, leave the shells, those shells provide a, a good building material, uh, much better than the silty sand, and more octopuses can live there. Those ones bring in more scallops and the whole process continues. So you have a situation where a large number of shells provide a material for building very superior shaft-like octopus dens, you know, holes lined quite neatly in some cases with shells. And at this site, you, you often have about a dozen of these. Uh, I think the maximum we've seen there is something like 14 animals and a, something roughly like that number of dens. 
it's not a city in the sense of a collaboratively built object. Uh, there's no social life of a kind of, um, you know, a, a human-like kind. There's lots of jostling and wrangling and animals getting in each other's spaces and things like that, quite a bit of wrestling. It is very unusual uh, when compared to other circumstances where octopuses have seen. Uh, but I... The city term, I the city term, I I would resist there. You've recently suggested that wild octopuses may possess the ability for targeted throwing. How does a scientist work out the motivations behind these smart behaviours? It's very hard in in the case of this throwing like behaviour. It, it's really extremely hard. We've been watching tape of this behaviour for over five years now, uh, and. I'm fairly confident that some of these throws are targeted on other individuals, but I would not claim it was definite. I think it's, 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 it's very hard to be sure. So what happens is octopuses quite often gather material in their arms, like a pile of shells, silt, seaweed, sometimes big amounts of stuff, sometimes just small amounts of stuff. And then by putting their jet propulsion device in an unusual position under the arm web, they can uh, do a kind of jet propelled throw. They release the arms and apply the jet and the stuff can fly quite a long way, several body lengths. Um, okay, so that's clear that they do that. And we, we understand how they do it roughly. Now, quite often when they do this, not most of the time or close to most of the time, but fairly often, they hit another animal. There's another octopus there who gets hit sometimes by a huge pile of silt and algae and shells or, or one of those things and will recoil, will sit back and obviously um, seems to regard the experience as, as at least somewhat unwanted. And that raises the question, did the thrower try to hit the other animal? Now, it's very hard to tell, partly because, and we, we as I say, spent quite a lot of time trying to puzzle through this, Octopuses do a lot of den cleaning. They're always gathering bits and pieces from their dens. And sometimes, not always, they get rid of it with one of these throw-type behaviours. They sort of cast it away from the den. Now, they often hit, they sometimes hit another individual. And it looks superficially targeted, but then you face the possibility that, I mean, if you imagine that you're cleaning your house, right, and throwing stuff out the front door, but you do so in a way where you're also keeping an eye on someone who happens to be hanging out near your front door, if you're watching that person as you throw the stuff, you might quite often hit that person without meaning to. It's just that you were, you were oriented in their direction as you were doing this, this throwing type behaviour. So once we realised that that was an alternative explanation for uh, what we're seeing, it was quite a long process to work out ways in which we might narrow down the range of possibilities and work out whether they really are throwing at each other. Um, one of the things that affected my thinking was the way that when they throw and hit another, quite often the arms are arranged somewhat differently. The, the material doesn't sort of come out straight in front. It sort of comes out a bit to the side uh, underneath a different combination of arms in a situation where if it had come out straight ahead, it wouldn't have hit the other octopus. But given the way it was 
emitted, it did hit that animal. That I think is quite telling, and we can do statistics on that uh, behaviour. There was also one particular case that we recorded back in 2016 where a female octopus threw debris 10 times in a few hours and hit another animal who was a male hanging out five times out of that 10. Uh, and as it went on, some of the you know some of the later throws were quite a bit bigger than the early ones. The male was ducking uh, even before the throw was emitted by the end. Um, that particular bit of tape, I must admit, had quite a big impact on me in trying to work out what was really going on here. It, it seemed quite hard to understand what was going on just in terms of the kind of house cleaning hypothesis. Mm. And you probably remember when um, there was that incredible footage of an octopus sort of lighting up underwater um, and people sort of framed that video as, oh, it's an octopus dreaming. Um, what was your first impression of that foot footage and would you agree that it was dreaming? Yeah, it's a good question. That, that footage was taken in the context of a, a TV show that, one of the co-authors on the throwing paper uh, was involved in. So it was the show was called, at least in some countries, it was called The Octopus in My House. And the house in question was David Shields' house, and he's the second author on uh, our throwing paper. So I've talked to David quite a lot uh, about, about that footage. As with the targeted throwing, it's very hard to work out for sure what's going on. But in the case of dreaming, I think there's a growing case that there's something like dreaming present in a lot of animals and that we may well have been seeing it in this case. Uh, there's growing evidence that in a surprising range of animals, there are several different, roughly two different modes of sleep, uh, where one of those modes of sleep in the human case is a dream-rich state and another uh, slower wave state is not. That's replicated across uh, quite a lot of animals. In the case of octopuses, those colour changes are directly controlled by the brain. The brain is making the, um, the skin do those things. Um, and it is a situation where in a particular kind of sleep, there's brain activity and the brain activity is giving rise to skin colours and patterns that are characteristic of certain kinds of activities in waking life. Now, to get from there to the idea that there's an experienced dreamlike state requires more steps and more inferences, and I don't think David would claim this is, uh, this is demonstrated yet. Uh, I know he has some work in progress in which he tries, he and his collaborators try to fill in some of the some of the missing steps. My sense is I think there's a, a pretty good case to be made that a, uh, a wide range of non-human animals do have dreamlike states, including dreamlike experiences, and that uh, octopuses would be one of those examples. Octopuses have a very short lifespan, some as short as six months. On top of this, they're solitary creatures with no one to learn from. The mystery of their short life but high level of intelligence perplexes scientists. How rare is a big brain and a short lifespan in the animal kingdom? Like how unique is the octopus in that sense? 
it's yeah it's very odd it's 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 a very unusual combination there there's two things about the octopus lifestyle that make their large brains puzzling one is the short lifespan and one is their not very social nature uh, the, the octopuses that we study uh, around Jervis Bay in, in the Octopolis site hang out with a lot more octopuses than your average octopus ever would. Most octopuses spend a lot of their time on their own. Um, that itself is puzzling. A lot of scientists think that social life is one of the main factors that selects in evolutionary terms for a large brain. And then you have the short lifespan, the fact that Brains are expensive to build and to run. Um, one would think that putting in that investment would only make sense if there was a pretty long period of time in which to get the benefits back, to, uh, to, to get the payoff of, of all this construction and the, the learning of how to handle your body and all that kind of thing. So to have an animal with that rushes through its life. Most octopuses are dead within one or two years, a couple a bit more than that, but that's, that's the norm. To have an animal that rushes through its life like that, uh, but does so in this very complicated and large-brained way, really is very surprising. It, it, it's quite anomalous. Uh, most of the large-brained vertebrates live for much longer. Um, and... Within invertebrates, octopuses are already such outliers. There's not really, it's, it's hard to even make comparisons. But it, this real, that combination that you mentioned really is an unusual combination. From your perspective, where do you think future research should focus? Um, I think... If you had a billion dollars and you could, you could study anything about octopuses, what would it be? Right. This is quite a difficult question for me because quite a bit of the recent excitement about octopuses is in the area of neuroscience, uh, making them into model organisms for the study of their brains. And um, a lot of neuroscientific experiments are not a lot of fun for the animals in the experiments. Uh, the idea of octopuses becoming a very widely used model organism in what are called invasive neuroscientific experiments, where you're really manipulating the animal's brain and body in large-scale ways, it does make me a bit un uncomfortable, I have to say. Well, more than a bit uncomfortable. I was very glad a couple of years ago when the EU, and this is being followed by other countries, made octopuses into, in a sense, honorary vertebrates with respect to animal welfare rules around experiments. So you have to use anaesthetic now. You can't just do whatever you like in the way that really used to be the case with octopuses. And if you read some of the old neuroscience experiments on octopuses, you know, work from the 50s and 60s, it, it can be a bit uh, of an uncomfortable experience uh, knowing what was going on. So I would, I would love to know a huge amount more about what octopuses are up to, how their brains work, but I, I don't want us to be rushing into trying to learn those facts in a way that involves taking the animals apart uh, too much. For that reason, I, you know, I, I like field work. I like, I like um, just watching the animals do their thing. It's 
always difficult to work out what they're doing in the field because the circumstances are so complicated. But that doesn't that doesn't bother me. I think it's fine to be patient. So if I had a billion dollars, uh, I think I would spend it on something else, actually. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Peter. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.